Well, it, it is great to be with you here at Greenbrier. I remember coming to this church for district assemblies and various activities that you guys would host as a church whenever we were privileged to be on the district back in our days in Bentonville. Um, we have been gone for about eight and a half years. I never thought when I left to go back to the Nashville area, actually, that I would be back in North Arkansas again. I never thought that would happen in God's goodness, and I'm so thankful for the invitation to come back and to be called back to serve. You know, most district superintendents are uh, a little bit older, and uh, they're usually a little bit taller, and uh, they rarely have children at home, and so uh, we are in a bit of a transition uh, phase in our lives, just trying to discern um, what it means to do this role with children at home, and uh, I actually... uh, credit and blame the Bentonville Church for all of that that has happened in our lives because most of our years in Bentonville, it was just Kelly and me. I went there when I was 29 years old, and we uh, were, were, for whatever reason, were unable to have children, and nobody could really ever tell us why, and so a couple years into our ministry there, we started an adoption process, and that began in 2004, and finally around Christmas of 2008, we were able to complete that journey. And we were able to bring home our son, um, whose name is Ivan. He was one year old, and we adopted him from the country of Russia. Some of you might remember that journey if you were a part of the district connection, the family of leadership in those days. And so I had Ivan with me in first service. He's back in children's church now. He's 11 years old now, and he is as tall as I am. And uh, we don't really know a lot about, like, his background. So he may be seven feet tall when this is all said and done. We don't know, but he's as big as I am. You can see him standing next to me there in the picture. Well, we couldn't have children 14 years uh, before we completed the adoption, and we thought that would be the end of it. And then a year and a half later, right before we left here to go to Tennessee, we found out that Kelly was pregnant for the first time in all of our years of marriage. And so that little guy standing next to Ivan was born when we moved to Tennessee, and his name is Peter. And we stayed with the Russian theme because, you know, Peter's a nice Russian name, but both of those names are biblical. Peter and and Ivan is just a derivative of the name John. And so we had two little gospel Bible guys, and so we kept them and thought that would be the end of things. And then uh, when I was in my 41st year of life, (laughs) we discovered that Kelly was pregnant again. And we thought, okay, great. She's been wanting to have a girl. This is her chance to have a girl, no problem. You should have been there the day at the doctor's office when they started doing that crazy thing on her tummy. And we looked up, and the doctor got a funny look on her face and said, wait a minute, I see two moving around in there. And so we wound up with our own Hunter and Hayden. But their names are William and Nora. And uh, Nora's in Children's Church, and... William wanted to sit with his mom, so he's over here, and uh, they're five years old. So um, our lives have changed tremendously since we went to Tennessee. There's something in the Duck River water over there. <laughs> Pastor before me had twins right after he arrived as well, and, uh, and so we got out of Dodge as fast as we could. <laughs> Eight and a half years later, um, thanks be to God, we don't know how these things work out in God's timing and his providence, but... It is a great privilege for us to come back to North Arkansas. We loved this district, and uh, we are loving Central Arkansas. And so thank you for your welcome today. This is the first church I've preached at since I've been district superintendent. I told Steve that we wanted to come up and visit one Sunday. He said, why don't you preach for me? And I'm like, great, I didn't even have to ask. And so 
Um, I haven't preached in a month, and I'm about to go crazy, you know? That's all I've done. I've been a pastor for 25 years, and now to do this new role is a change. Would you pray for our family? Would you guys pray for us? I would be so thankful. You guys are, are, are one of the best churches on our district, if not the best church on our district, and uh, have always led the way. You've been such a wonderful team player. You've just modeled ministry here. And I want to say thank you to you for that on behalf of the North Arkansas District and the whole Church of the Nazarene. Greenbrier Church, thank you for being who you are, for your support, for your prayers, for your leadership. And it's wonderful to be a part of this leadership team and to be a part of our district. And thank you for your wonderful welcome to us this morning. And I think at the end of the service, Pastor Steve said you guys are going to pray for us. And I think that would be a wonderful way for us to begin our ministry here. And I want to say thank you on behalf of our family for praying for us and continuing to support us. And if, if God brings our family to your minds, would you pray for us? And um, we're trying to figure out what it means not only to be a new district superintendent, but to start new schools and to be in a new town and to adjust to new life. So we would love it if you would pray for us. And uh, we want to thank you for that and for your goodness um, to all of us. Um, I love your pastor and his wife. I loved Jim, Pastor Jim and his wife. They were wonderful friends to my, of mine back in those days. Um, but I am so thankful that God led the Thrashers into a leadership role. You have two of the finest servant leaders I've ever served with in ministry. I hope you know that. I hope you know that. And uh, thank God for blessing their family with ministry calls and gifts, and your church is a beneficiary of that. Well, thank you for all of that this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to the book of Revelation, if you will. I'm going to start reading it, some verses from chapter 1, and then I'm going to wrap up in, with some verses in chapter 2. I'm going to talk with you about one of the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches. And... Um, these letters were written 2,000 years ago, but they are not just some theoretical group of letters that were written with the hopes that, you know, Jesus would just kind of um, put a bunch of stuff out there and I hope it sticks, but that these were letters written to very real churches at a very real time in Christian history. But because they're the Word of God, not only were they written specifically to these, these seven churches, but, but, but God through His Holy Spirit has inspired them in such a way that they are also words that have been written to churches of every age throughout human history. And they are still a very vital word and a relevant word for the church of the 21st century. In fact, because Revelation is an apocalypse and it's talking about the return of Christ, I believe that these words take on even greater significance as we get closer and closer to the return of Jesus. And I believe Jesus is coming soon. How about you? And because of that, I think these letters have that much more significance for us as we hear them. Now, I'm not going to preach all letters to the seven churches to you today and all God's people agreed and said, all right? I'm only going to give you one of them today, but I'm going to give you kind of a, I'm going to, I'm going to ease you into the, the, the letters, the, all the letters that Jesus gives before I go into the one specific letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, these seven churches were located on what the people at Jesus' time and the time when John wrote these letters, you know, all those decades after Jesus had gone, gone back to heaven, um, he wrote these to an area that they would have just simply known as Asia because they were unaware of the vast expanse that you and I know of, of the continent of Asia today. They called it that Asia. You and I now refer to this area as Asia Minor today, and we know it more specifically as the country of Turkey where these churches would have been located. 
The first letter that Jesus addresses is to the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus would have been kind of the regional center for that whole area. Ephesus was kind of a New York City of the ancient world. It was a very cosmopolitan place. It was a place where you would go if you wanted to be surrounded by multiculturalism of every kind, um, economic systems of every kind. I, I kind of always, when I think about Ephesus, I always think that's the city you would go to if you wanted to see a Broadway show. You know, it was, it was that type of place, and everyone wanted to be there. John the one who wrote this letter, as a very old man, had become kind of the leader, at least the spiritual leader of that area. And so m- many of the churches kind of fed off of him as an elder or as a, this older brother, this leader of their, of their movement. G- John being, of course, the only one of the 12 who did not die, kind of a, either in Judas's case, a suicide or the other 11, um, kind of a martyr's death. John lived all the way to the old age and died on the Isle of Patmos, we believe. And so here's John in this very old age, still in relationship with Jesus, still communing with, feeling the presence of the Holy Spirit, still believing that God has great things to say through him as a minister, even though he's on exile. The Bible says he experienced this vision, and in this vision, Jesus spoke to him what you and I know now as the book of Revelation. But before he got into those apocalyptic texts that I'm not actually going to be looking at today, Jesus addresses the churches, and he has a word to say to them that's very appropriate, and I believe that you and I might need to hear it today even as more or as, as much or as more as they did at Ephesus long ago. So I'll begin reading at verse 9 of chapter 1, and I'll just kind of skip just a bit. It's on the screen if you'd like to follow along with me. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He had suffered persecution because of his faithfulness to Christ through his life and through his words. And I was on the Spirit on the Lord's day, so John, even on Patmos, was making sure that he was engaging in the routines of weekly worship on Sunday with with whatever other believers were exiled there with him. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice. That's a strange statement, isn't it? You hear a voice and you turn to see that voice as opposed to hear that voice. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like, the flame of, uh, like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Brothers and sisters, you would do the same thing, amen? But he laid his right hand on me, saying, would you say these words with me? Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. We sang about that today, didn't we? And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches or the messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, talking to Ephesus, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. If you have an NIV this morning, it says, remember the heights from which you have fallen. And do the works, and repent, and do the works you did at first. Because if not, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place, unless or until you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of your word and the power of your presence. We pray that you who are among us today, moving in and amongst us in this church, just as you are moving in and amongst the church at Ephesus, we pray that you would speak to us today through the power of your word and through the strength of your Holy Spirit. And we will give you all praise in Jesus' name. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. In this particular passage, <clears throat> Jesus makes it very clear that John sees this vision that Jesus is not way out there somewhere, kind of looking down and looking down upon or directing from a distance the churches, but that Jesus is actually living and moving and working among the church, that he is there in their midst, and that he desires to be there in their midst and to live among them and to work among them and to serve among them. And in fact, the, the, the presence of Jesus is felt all over this passage because because the seven churches are there and what unites them together is that the Holy Spirit is there with them. And that Jesus through his spirit is there. Just to, these, imagine these golden lampstands, each one being one of these churches. And that these seven spirits, which are just the spirit of God, moving among them. Isn't it nice, brothers and sisters, to know that God's Holy Spirit is moving in and amongst his church today? We are not alone, that he's here with us, that he is with his church wherever he, wherever she might be, and he's ministering to them, and he's walking among them, and he's filling them, and he's encouraging them all along the way. And Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, that's exactly what's happening with you as well. I am with you. I am among you. I care about you. I am watching. I am aware. I'm very much in tune. I know what's going on in your church. I know what's going on in your world. None of it is a surprise to me. The future is not fearful to me. The future is not uncertain to me. I'm already aware of it all, and I will go with you into that future. I will be among you. You will never walk alone. Amen? And Jesus makes that promise to them, and he makes that same promise to us, and he commends the Christians at Ephesus. He commends this little fledgling church that's living in a big city that's got everything to appeal to it other than the things of God. Jesus is talking to a congregation that is, that is surrounded by a culture that's not Christian. In fact, they would have been one of the smallest groups in that place. There would have been 
large Jewish communities. There would have been large pagan communities. The Roman society there was immense. There were temples everywhere in Ephesus to every imaginable Roman or Greek god. It was a very religious place in that way, but they were not followers of Jesus. The church was small. It was fledgling. Everyone around them every day probably told them they were crazy for following Jesus. Everyone at work probably told them, I can't believe you go to church. I can't believe you follow Jesus. I can't believe you believe all that stuff. They were surrounded by people who not only believed all kinds of things and thought they were crazy for only believing in the one true God, but they were people who did all kinds of things. They lived however they wanted. It was a pagan society. There was no right or wrong, or if there was, it certainly wasn't the way many of us in this room imagine right and wrong to be. They lived that life just because it was the way to live. And these followers of Jesus who chose to live a different way, practiced different ethics, were viewed skeptically and cynically and mocked and misunderstood and called all kinds of names. They were called out. They were arrested. Many times they were hauled before tribunals and persecuted. Some of them had even faced execution along the way. And Jesus, looking down on this little church, that is surrounded on every side by people who don't understand them and don't agree with them and think that they're crazy because they do what they do. And Jesus looks at them and he commends them. I know your works. I know your toil. I know how you have endured patiently in a world that is against you and oppressing you and fighting against everything you know to be true. And yet, in spite of all this horrible teaching that's all around you that tells you, all this stuff is acceptable or all this stuff is tolerable or all this stuff is right. You have remained true to right teaching. You've stayed true to the gospel. You've stayed true to the Christian ethic. You've continued to live by the, old, by the, by the Ten Commandments and, and the, the, the law of love and all of that stuff. And you have been faithful to me in spite of the fact that many in your fellowship have probably not remained faithful. That many in your society that might have kind of... Kind of tasted of, the, of, of Christian faith have now kind of gone back into their old ways of life. Jesus says that in spite of the adversity they've gone through, in spite of the difficulties that they've experienced, no doubt from within the church, but also from outside the church, that he is aware of how they've remained true to him, and he commends them for that. Some of you might remember that Paul, when he was nearing his ministry, he warned the Ephesians that there would be fierce wolves who would, who would come in among them and would try to seek, would seek to destroy their faith and lead them astray with bad teaching. And it seems obvious that by the time John had written this letter, that's exactly what had happened at Ephesus. They had had some fierce wolves come in from among, into their midst and try to distract them from the tr one true gospel with bad teaching. So on one hand, they had the outside world telling them they're crazy, but on the inside, they were resisting people who were trying to teach them bad doctrine as well. Bad doctrine that basically kind of plays itself out just like this. Legalism on one hand... It's all about rules, it's all about the check boxes, it's all about obeying and doing what you're told on one hand. Or the extreme to the other side is it's all about loose living. Do whatever you want, grace will cover it all, none of it really matters. And that kind of bad teaching had taken hold in the church at Ephesus. Some had kind of been sucked into this legalism orb and they were a bunch of rule mongers. Some of them had kind of fallen into this kind of cheap grace orb where they could live however they want and none of it mattered. I am so glad that we don't have to worry about that in the modern church, aren't you? That's exactly the same kind of stuff we struggle with in the church in the 21st century, isn't it? 
being able to understand that the, we, we serve a, a, a Christ who, is a, who preaches a gospel of grace and truth. Amen? And that he teaches us to live faithfully to him without having to be pulled into some legalistic orb where we begin to hate God and begin to do things and the world can't stand us. And on the other hand, where we begin to think we can just do whatever we want and that there's no such thing as a holy life and it doesn't matter anyway. We are always, the church of every age has had to battle that pendulum swing back and forth, haven't we? And so these words are very appropriate for us as well. And yet Jesus says to them, oh, I know it hasn't been easy. It's been hard work, but you've remained steady. You've remained true. I've watched you. You've resisted that bad teaching or that bad living that's been coming into your church or beating you out from, from the outside. That Nicolaitans group, we don't know a whole lot about them. We know they were probably a forerunner of the, the, real, the real enemy of the early church, the Gnostics. The Nicolaitans were pretty sure were coming in and, and teaching kind of that cheap grace gospel that, that you could just live however you want and none of it really matters. It's all going to be covered by grace anyway. And all of that had kind of taken root and yet Jesus commends the church at Ephesus because they had seemed to have fought all that off. But you know how it is, brothers and sisters. I've dealt with it in my own life. I've certainly had to deal with it as a pastor over these years. I know that you've had to face it as well as a church, but in your individual lives, no doubt. To be able to remain true to Christ in terms of right thinking and to be able to remain true to Christ in terms of right living is never easy, is it? It's hard work. It, it requires intentionality. And it begins at times to wear you down. You feel beat down sometimes by the, the onslaught of the world, don't you? When more and more of the people that live around you don't go to church and think you're crazy for doing so, and the people that you work with, more and more of them not quite understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus or why you would even choose that route, you know what it feels like to feel like you're in a minority group in that way, don't you? That's exactly how they felt at Ephesus. No different. That the whole world was against them, and that culture had, in their case, culture hadn't changed. Culture was what it always had been, and it wasn't like them. And in our case... We, many of us in this room probably remember the culture of kind of a Christian society. Maybe it felt that way at times when, when, when we, we, we weren't kind of out here by ourselves. And more and more as we move further into history, we probably feel like we're more and more isolated from the, the society that's around us. We've all been surrounded by people that, that um, especially those of us in the holiness tradition, that, that try to live a, a certain type of Christian ethic in our lives and other Christians that look at us and go, what are you doing? Why do you think that you need to do that? Just do whatever you want. Live however you want. And it doesn't matter. It's all about grace anyway. We all understand the, the, how you get resist that, but it begins to wear you down. And that's exactly what had happened to the church at Ephesus. The struggle had taken its toll on them. And Jesus says to them, in spite of all that you've done right, I'm so proud of you, in fact, because you have done so many things right. The problem is, is that you've, you've won all these battles, but I'm afraid you're in the process of losing your soul. Yeah, you've fought it all off, but, but you've lost your first love. And so in addition to encouraging them for their goodness and their faithfulness, Jesus is calling the church at Ephesus, and I would say he's probably calling some of us in this room today, to return to our first love. And that's really what the church at Ephesus is most known for is that invitation of Jesus to return to their first love. But all throughout the centuries, people have often wondered, well, what was their first love? And I think, I think Jesus keeps it a little bit kind of generalized there because 
there are some possible ways that that can be looked at. What was their first love? And I think that no matter where else we land this morning, that we could all say that, that their first love was, first of all, the love they had for Jesus. Amen? That sometime back in their journey, there was a time when their passion for the Lord was immense. That they, there was once an enthusiasm in their relationship with God. They woke up every day with a sense of joy because they got to be a follower of Jesus. And it makes me think of my own journey and that, that season, that little window of time in my 16 to 18 year kind of window when God was beginning to do a really deeper work in my life. I remember the, the enthusiasm and the joy and the passion I had to be in a relationship with Jesus. How wonderful and how fun that was. You see, to, to, have, to have a love for Jesus means to have a single-minded devotion to him. And for many of us, if, if we can't really remember what that's like, the way things are in our relationship with God now, then maybe we can all look back just a ways as I just did and be reminded of how things were in the early days of our relationship with the Lord. You remember how it was when you first became a follower of Jesus? Do you remember the, the joy you felt of knowing that you had been forgiven? Do you remember the excitement that you had just knowing that you were a child of God, that you couldn't wait to read your Bible, you couldn't wait to pray, you couldn't wait to listen to Christian music and the intimacy and the fellowship of Christ's spirit in your life and how it just filled you with joy every single day, this immense enthusiasm. You see, that's how it was for the Christians at Ephesus as, as well at one time in their journey. At one point along the way, they had become Christians and, and they had had their lives turned upside down just like you and I had and they had this great joy. And when they established their church, no doubt, that the, 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 the joy of being a new church and Jesus establishing his presence in that grand city of Ephesus, can you imagine how exciting that was for them when all of that had happened? But brothers and sisters, life has a way of taking a toll on us, doesn't it? And it begins to wear us down. And the folks at Ephesus had come to the place where the honeymoon with Jesus was over. And there's a lot of followers of Jesus that are that, are, that, that have a relationship with Christ and they're going through the motions, but the honeymoon with Jesus is over. Now it's just about checking off the boxes. It's about going through the rituals. It's about doing the religious thing. But, but without the joy and the enthusiasm that we once had in our early times with Jesus, and they had lost that enthusiasm that they once knew and experienced and loved above all else with Jesus, that could be what he's referring to when he says, I want you to return to your first love. But it could also mean another type of love that they had, and that was the love that they no doubt felt for one another as Christians in the body of Christ. You see, there's, there's, a, there's a joy of fellowship that's found in the body of Christ that no doubt the folks at Ephesus had once experienced. I have no doubt that when the, God first established their community, that they loved being together with their brothers and sisters in Christ. But probably as a result of the fights that they had had with the Nicolaitans, the fights they had had with other people who had come into their church and taught bad teaching, or just the, the never-ending bombardment of a pagan culture out there, they had begun not only to lose their passion for Jesus, but because you get tired of being hurt by people, and you just get worn down by the fights with other people, that they no doubt had begun to hold each other at arm's length. And the intimacy that they used to experience, loving to be together, that, that was now over with for them. 
See, I remember when my relationship with Jesus was burning hot back in those years that I just couldn't stand to not be with my church family. I wanted to be in church. I wanted to be around people who were, who were deeply committed to Christ. I wanted to grow. I wanted to, I wanted to do things with them. I loved being a part of a Sunday school class or a small group in those eras. And being around other Christians was how I grew and, and knew I was loved and felt fellowship and all of that sort of thing. Oh, how I loved the intimacy of the body of Christ. It was exciting. It was nurturing. It was almost intoxicating in those honeymoon moments when Jesus became real for me. How about you? And there's a lot of Christians out there today that, that have a relationship with Christ, but, but the love they once had for the body of Christ has grown cold. Based upon current church trends and how often we actually darken the doors of churches in the modern Christian world, it's an indication that our passion for each other is not as great as it once was. And yet there's no way we can live out the one another's of the New Testament in isolation from one another. We really do need each other. And there's joy that comes in our fellowship with one another. And it seems as if the battles that just make it easier to not go there sometimes have a way of robbing our soul. And Jesus says to them, I want you to return to your first love. You see, because their love for Jesus would no doubt translate into a love for the body of Christ. Amen? But I also think probably the last part of this would be just the inevitable slide of losing that love for each other. And I think the folks at Ephesus had probably lost their love for the lost as well. You see, can you imagine how exciting it was to be a church plant in one of the most cosmopolitan cities of the ancient world? Knowing everyone around you was, was a prospective person that could come to know Christ. Can you imagine what all that must have felt like as they would go into their community, go to work, go to school, go into their neighborhoods and reach out to people and see people come to faith in Christ. The, the passion, the, the burden, the urgency that they had that their family members and their friends were one heartbeat away from being eternally separated from God that drove them with passion into their world. They loved being around the lost. They loved sharing the gospel. They loved being the gospel. Because when you love Jesus and you love the body of Christ, you have to tell other people. You just have to. By expressing the love of God in your world through witness, the, our words and our deeds. And it seems as if, probably because they had been burned by some of that, they had lost their passion for the lost. And it's very easy when that happens to become very insulated as a church. To just kind of look in and turn inward, and as a result, no evangelism happens. No one comes to Christ, but man, we feel safe. But Jesus still has that great commission out there where he calls us into the world to make disciples. Amen? That has not changed. And he desires for us to reestablish that burden, reestablish that passion. I tell people all the time when they come to faith in Christ that one of, the, one of the assurances of faith that the Holy Spirit gives a new believer is a burden and an urgency to seek the lost in their lives. You will know that you are deeply committed to Jesus when that, that passion for Jesus translates into a passion for people that are far from God. And when that passion for people who are far from God is no longer there, then it might be that we need to begin to look, go back and start looking how are things in our relationship with Jesus as well. All of these things, no matter what they are, love for each other, love for the lost, stem from a, from a loss of our love for Jesus. Because when you lose your love for Jesus, the inevitable slide will be you will lose your love for the body of Christ. You won't want to be around it as much, and you will lose your love for those outside the church. And as you slide further and further away from your relationship with Jesus, of course, 
you're not going to be an effective witness because your own life is not one which could be emulated. And so Jesus says to the Ephesian Christians, and he might be saying to some of us this morning that have lost that joy of the Lord, that have lost that passion for the fellowship of the body of Christ, that have lost that burden for the lost, Jesus says, I want you to return to your first love, but how can we return to our first love? And luckily, Jesus tells us in verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And so I'm just going to take each of those phrases because Jesus gives us kind of the map back into our first love. And the first thing Jesus says is, I want you to remember. I want you to remember. Now, to remember what? Remember from where, he says. Remember from where you have come. Now, don't, don't forget that these letters were not written for outsiders. These letters were not written for people far from God. You need to have Jesus in your heart. These letters were written to churches, people like you and me who are already in relationship with Christ, people who have already experienced the grace of God in our lives. Jesus is writing to them, and he's saying, I want you, you insiders, to remember from where you came. You see, it's very possible for you and me to be on the inside, and if we're a part of a church, we're on the inside, and yet we can still lose the way, can't we? We can get caught up in the motions of religion, get caught up in the, ritual, the rituals and the, the, the regulations of it all, just simply become people that do what we're supposed to do is, and, to, and, to, and to, to make it look like we're really deeply committed to Jesus when we're not. And so for Jesus, memory becomes our first step back to our first love with him. Many of you probably know the story of the parable of the prodigal son. And his, that story is a great illustration of what this looks like. The prodigal son, way off in the distant country, far from his father, gone down the wrong paths. He's an insider, by the way. He's a son of the father. And here he is way down the pathway, feeding pigs to pigs in a pigsty, hoping he can eat some for himself. And the Bible says as he's doing that, suddenly, in verse 17 of chapter 15 of Luke, the Bible says when he came to his senses... Something happened on the inside of him, and, and it says that he began to think all these things. In essence, and I kind of summarized it, when he came to his senses, he started remembering what? Say it. Home. He started remembering from where he had come. He started remembering what it was like back then. The great short story writer, O. Henry, wrote a story about a young boy who had been brought up in a small village away from the activity of the city and all of the world and all of that. And in that village school, he sat beside this little village girl. He was innocent and sweet. She was innocent and sweet. Well, as we all know, we all grow up, and eventually these two people grew up as well. And that boy, like so many others, found his way into the city. And while he was in the city, he fell into some pretty bad company. And in order to provide for himself and to support himself... He had become an expert pickpocket. He was a thief. One day he was out on the street. He was conducting his business. He had just picked a pocket. A neat job. Well done. In fact, quite pleased with himself for how clean of a job he had done. When suddenly he looked across the street and saw a group of people walking down the sidewalk. And in that group of people was that little girl. But she was not little anymore. She had grown up just like he had. But he looked upon her face and he saw her as that little girl, innocent and sweet. 
Now, she didn't see him. He made sure of that. He was an expert at hiding in, 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 in the darkness, wasn't he? But suddenly in that moment, as he saw her, not only did he see her, but he also saw himself. He saw who he had been, and he realized what he had become. And he leaned his burning head against the cool iron of a lamppost, and he said, God, how I hate what I've become. You see, memory was offering him the way back. And brothers and sisters, you can't begin to put things right in your life until you realize that something has gone wrong. And for many of us here this morning, that love we once had for Jesus has gone wrong. That love we once had for the body of Christ has gone wrong. That passion we once had for the lost in our lives has gone wrong. And Jesus' first admonition to you and me this morning is to remember. Remember what it was like back there when you first came to faith. Remember that honeymoon with Jesus and desire above all else as the kid in the prodigal son story to return to that as step one. But then Jesus' next words to them is a word to us as well. It's a very simple word. It's a one word. That's the word repent. You see, repentance is not just feeling bad about ourselves or feeling bad about what we've done. Repentance at its essence involves a change of mind. It involves a change of, of attitude about something. It's a recognition that, that no passion for Jesus isn't the right thing. That not feeling a passion for the body of Christ is not, nor, not normal for a follower of Jesus. To feel no burden for the lost, it shouldn't be that way. It starts right there. But then with that repentance, of course, the word itself literally means a turning. We make a complete 180 degree turn. And in our mind and in our attitude, even before we begin to do it with our feet, we start making a change. We start going in a different direction. So if we've been going away from Jesus, now suddenly we start intentionally moving toward Jesus. If we've been disconnecting from the body of Christ, suddenly in our mind and our attitude, we begin to reconnect to the body of Christ. If we've let go of our urgency for the lost, if we no longer pray for our family and friends who don't know Jesus, suddenly in our mind and our attitude, we begin to do those things before we ever actually begin to do them. But it all involves a recognition that I have to make a change. Something's got to be different inside of me. William Barclay, some of you know that name. He was a great New Testament scholar way back in the 1960s, even before I was born, but I've used his stuff for years. He wrote these words. He said, when we discover that something has gone wrong, there's more than one possible reaction. We may feel that nothing, nothing can sustain its first brightness, not even our honeymoon with Jesus. It can never be what it once was, and so we just accept what we consider inevitable. I guess you just get into the routines and the motions of faith eventually. Or we may be filled with a feeling of resentment because life is difficult, and there's pressures on the inside, and there's pressures on the outside, and start blaming life for where we are instead of facing ourselves for what we've allowed ourselves to become. Or we may decide that the old thrill, that thrill we had with Jesus, how we were so excited and the enthusiasm, well, we can't find it in Jesus anymore. So instead, we go down forbidden pathways and try to spice up our lives with sin. Oh, my brothers and sisters, how easy it is for any of us to choose any of those paths. Amen. But the risen Christ says, say it, repent. And repentance is the admission that the fault is ours and the expression of sorrow that it is so. 
Repentance is the recognition that, yeah, there's been some movement, but it was never God who moved. Amen? If there's been any movement away from our relationship with Jesus, it's not because Jesus moved away from us, is it? It's because we have moved away from him, amen? If we've lost our passion, our enthusiasm for the body of Christ, it's not because the body of Christ has somehow become less lovable. Brothers and sisters, it's always been hard work in the body of Christ. It's because we've just simply allowed ourselves to disconnect from our connection to her. If our burden and our urgency for the lost is no longer there, it's not because suddenly the lost are no longer lost, or that it doesn't matter that we reach them anymore. It's because something has changed back there where our wiring tells us, well, I guess they're all going to make it to heaven anyway. You see, something's moved, but it's never God. Amen? You see, the prodigal son tells us that when he was mired in the pig, pot, the pig pen. He didn't just say, well, you know, who's everybody else's fault that I wound up here? He began to think it all through. And finally, he said, this is all about me. These are about the choices I have made. And finally, in verse 18, he said, I will set out. I will go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, you have been a terrible dad and you've made me a sinner. Is that what he said? No. Father, you haven't moved. In fact, he had. And the father, for that, from the moment the son left, the father was always at the edge with his arms outstretched, waiting for his boy to come on home, wasn't he? Instead, he said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. A recognition for my part in this. Just a few pastoral words for you, brothers and sisters. The hardest thing about repentance is the acceptance of personal responsibility for our part in the loss of our first love. It's so easy to blame the world. It's so hard to be a Christian in. It's so easy to blame other Christians who have disappointed us and let us down. It's so hard to blame the staff. If only the pastors would do this or that. It's so easy to blame other people for it. But never forget, Jesus doesn't move. To recognize that the distance we feel between us and God or between where we are compared to where we used to be in our relationship and in our joy for the things of God is never because God has somehow messed it up. When we look in the mirror and we recognize it was always us who began to move, chasing over other gods, going down other pathways, choosing other priorities above the things of God then it's the change of mind and heart about those decisions. That is the work of repentance. And with that change of mind and heart will come a prayer for forgiveness. Oh, Father, as the prodigal son prayed, forgive me for I have sinned against heaven and against you. And that will then lead to my last point, which is whenever we remember where we once were and we repent of where we have allowed ourselves to come, then what we'll naturally do then is return to the first things. Now, what is the very first thing that we ever did to be able to become a follower of Jesus? The first thing any of us ever did to become a follower of Jesus was we flung ourselves on the grace of God because we came to some point there as a child or a teenager or as an adult that we could not save ourselves, that there was no possibility that we could ever be right with God apart from God's action and God's move and that we needed God's grace to ever make us who we could become. And so somewhere back there when we recognized how far we were from God, God's grace began to stir and we flew, flung ourselves on his grace. And in that moment of surrender, we discovered the grace of God and we discovered forgiveness, and we discovered a relationship with an almighty, awesome, loving God. You see, that's where sorrow for sin comes in. That's when a prayer for forgiveness comes in. 
when we begin to take action and move back toward our amazing grace-giving God. Because just like the father and the prodigal son, our amazing Jesus, no matter how far you and I have moved, he is always standing at the edge of the village with his hands outstretched waiting for his, brother, his sons and his daughters to come back home. Always waiting for his home. And so in verse 20 of Luke 15, the Bible tells us that the prodigal son, what did he do? He got up and he went to his father. And he knew, boy, he had messed up. And that the only hope he had was that his father would be graceful. And so sure enough, he flung himself on the grace of his father. And guess what happened? He didn't get rebuked. He didn't get judged. He didn't get destroyed. He didn't get beat down. He was embraced. He was loved. He was restored as a beloved child and a beloved member of the family. But he had to do that work. You see, book of Revelation stuff, at the end of these letters... Is that little story where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open the door and answer it, I will come in and I will eat with him and he with me. And some of you have seen that painting that that guy drew decades ago. It's so beautifully done of Jesus standing at the door in the book of Revelation, knocking. But there's no doorknob on the outside. The only way that door can be opened is from the inside. The person hearing the knock, opening the door and letting Jesus come in. And this morning, our Jesus is knocking on the door of all of our hearts saying, oh, how I long to be in relationship with you again. Oh, how I want the joy and the intimacy and the fellowship that we once had. Oh, how I want to see you deeply connected to my body, connected to the things of God. Oh, how I need you to reach the lost and reach out to those who are far from God. But it can't happen, brothers and sisters, unless you and I open that door and let him in. How do I get back to my first love? Well, I remember who I was. I repent of where I've been. I let, the, let that change my mind and my attitude about it all. And then I begin to take action. I fling myself on the grace of God. God, restore me. God, forgive me. God, return the joy of my salvation again. But then the next step of that is, is that my life will begin to bear fruit worthy of that repentance. Repentance is not just saying, hey, I'm sorry, I'll do different, and then I go back and keep doing what I've always been doing. Repentance means not only do I know it's wrong, I believe it's wrong, I change my attitude about it, but then my life begins to bear different fruit as well. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Now, that line is simply taken from John the Baptist's ministry in the Judean wilderness in preparation for the coming of Jesus. People were coming out to John to be baptized, and they wanted, they wanted grace from John, but they didn't get a whole lot. They got a revival preacher telling them, bear fruit worthy of repentance. He preached a message of, of repentance and reminded them that no one who has truly repented of their sins continues returning to the same sins over and over again. That a changed life and a changed mind and a changed heart is the real life fruit of repentance. And here's the cool thing. Jesus followed right on the heels of that. Remember, he was baptized by John. And he, he began his own ministry embracing that same message of truth. Repent, he said, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now Jesus seasoned that message with a lot more grace because Jesus knew that it's going to require God's grace for us to ever be able to experience that anyway. We fling ourselves on the grace of God because it is God's grace alone that will enable us to begin to bear fruit worthy of repentance. You see, repentance means a change of mind and heart, but it will also mean bearing fruit worthy of repentance. In this case, 
What does that look like, Mark? Bearing fruit worthy of repentance. Well, let me just let this sermon go full circle this morning. It means returning to the lifestyle that grows out of my love for God and my love for others. And that lifestyle is the very same as what you experienced when you first came to know Jesus. The first love we talked about at the very beginning. Love for Jesus, love for one another, and love for the lost. You see, when you remember who you once were and you repent of where you've come and you begin to return to first things, you fling yourself on the grace of God and you begin to bear fruit worthy of repentance and that fruit looks a whole lot like your honeymoon with Jesus. You will love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You will love your neighbors yourself. You will find yourself finding the joy and the restoration of your passion for the body of Christ's return. You'll want to be with your brothers and sisters. And together you will have a burden and a passion. You'll begin to pray more often. You'll be able to begin to witness appropriately more often. You'll begin to live a life that models faithfulness to people in your family and in your school and in your work who are far from God. It all starts, though, with that prodigal son flinging himself on the grace of his father. God, if I'm ever going to do this, it's going to be your work on the inside of me. It's not going to be my effort. I'm not going to walk out of here today and go, I'm just going to do better. No, no. That's probably what got us where we are now. The only way we'll ever be able to pull this off is if we let God do that work of grace on the inside of us. And so our first step then in that remembrance is the recognition, I couldn't save myself. It all took God's grace. I can't keep myself saved. It all requires God's grace. And I can't come back to the love I once had for God apart from God's grace. So why don't I just fling myself on the grace of God today? Jesus says to the church at Ephesus what he says to all the seven churches. And I'm going to say it to us, brothers and sisters. He or she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So let me ask you this. Have you lost your first love? Have you lost that passion, that enthusiasm, that joy you once had in your relationship with Jesus? Has the honeymoon with Jesus kind of ended with you? How about your love for the body of Christ? Do you still have that same love and passion for the fellowship of your brothers and sisters that you once experienced when you first came to know Christ? How's your passion quotient for people who are far from God? Do you wake up every day with a burden in your heart for spouses and children and neighbors and friends who are far from Him? Or do you just kind of like not even let that affect you anymore? Well, would you like to have your first love returned? Would you like to experience again the joy of the Lord in your life again? Would you like to, to wake to come to church with enthusiasm because you get to be with your brothers and sisters and you long to experience that fellowship again? Do you want to have a burden and an urgency for people far from God, especially your family, but even those that you know and love as well? Would you like to be closer to Jesus than you are right now? Would you like to pray? Step one, is remember. Many of you are doing that right now. You're remembering. Step two is repentance. Change of mind and heart about the way things are. That most important step is when all that recognition comes. Number one step. Go do it again. I double dog dare you. Fling yourself on the grace of God like you once did. And 
let God's grace take hold of you again, restore you again, turn you upside down again, and renew in you the joy of the Lord, enthusiasm for the church, your burden for the lost. And I believe that, that Jesus will come running to answer a prayer like that on the hearts of his people. I'd like for you to stand this morning, and I've asked Hunter just to sing for me. And if you would like to come and pray this morning about anything, but if you'd like to come and say, oh, God, return the joy of my salvation. Give me a burden and a passion for the lost. Help me to view the church in the ways that I once saw her as a place where my life could be lived and experienced. Oh, Jesus, give me the joy of my salvation again. If you'd like to have that again, I know no better place yourself on the grace of God than these altars. And so as Hunter sings, our altars are open and you are invited to come if you'd like to pray this morning. You're my author, my maker, my ransom, my savior, my refuge, my hiding place. You're my helper, my healer, my blessed redeemer. My answer, my saving grace. You're my hope in the shadows, my strength in the battles, my anchor for all my days. Oh, and you stand by my side and you stood in my place, Jesus. No other name, only Jesus, no other name, only Jesus, no other name. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for not only the promise of your presence, but the reality of your presence in our midst today. Thank you that you are continuing to move in and amongst not only the church, but this church. In and amongst these people that you love. And you died to redeem and rescue from sin and give them hope and possibility. There are people in this congregation that are still overwhelmed by that reality and by your grace. And they've never been the same since the day that you entered in. And they are still not the same. They've been transformed by your awesome grace and it drives them every day and they love you and they love your people because your people are your body they love the fellowship that they experience with the people of God because in that life together they find you and together God with like minded folks they, they constantly are drawn into relationships with people who are far from God they view them not with skepticism or judgmentalism, but they view them with possibility and hope. And they're going into their lives and they're ministering to them. And they're serving them in Jesus' name and they're rescuing some from the, from the kingdom of darkness and transforming them into the kingdom of light. God, that is the essence of what the church is supposed to be. But Lord, I know that there are people here this morning because they're in every church that there's a lot of years that have separated between that feeling and where they are now. 
this morning your Holy Spirit is speaking to them and saying, oh, I long to know you again. I long to be in deep communion with you. I long to experience the intimacy of fellowship with you again. Would you come home? Would you look in the mirror and recognize where you've come and call out to me in mercy and allow my grace to begin the process of transforming you into the person I know you can be because you were once before. There are people at this altar, but there are people that are standing in the congregation as well that right now in our hearts together are saying, Lord Jesus, restore the joy of my salvation. Rescue me from religiosity. Rescue me from going through the motions. Rescue me from a spirit of judgmentalism about the way things are and help me to just once again fall into the joy that I once knew in the honeymoon of my journey with you. There are people in this congregation, God, and at these altars that that desperately long to love the church again. Long to be with the body of Christ with its good things and its bad things. And they understand that you take all of that with people and they're willing to take the risk again. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would inspire them and encourage them. Lord, I pray that among this body of believers, there would become an increasing burden and urgency lost. We believe that you are coming again, Lord Jesus, which means these words are even more relevant to us. And God, how important it is that we do our part to share the love of God with people who are far from him. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would place within all your people a burden, a passion, an urgency for their family and friends who are far from you. Call them to pray for them, to invite them, to love them, to serve them in Jesus' name. And may their lives be better, and may your kingdom win as a result. Lord, I pray for this church that you are doing great things in her. You're going to keep doing that, I know. And I pray, Lord, that you would help this church to always be the model in this community of a church that's deeply, passionately um, in love with Jesus and his body. So, God, as we go from here today, we pray that you would go with us. Help us, Lord, to bear fruit worthy of repentance by loving you, loving each other, and loving the lost. We'll give you all praise and thanks today in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree to say, amen.